Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Well, look with me, uh, Pew Bible, page 576. We're going to look at the entirety, the entirety of the 12th chapter of Isaiah. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him dependently in prayer. Lord, we are poor and needy and in need of being fed. So I pray that You would help me to rightly handle the Word of truth and grant us all ears to hear. Speak, Lord, for Your servant is listening. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The 6th through the 12th chapters, Bible scholars tell us, uh, are a catalog of sorts. They contain a theme. You might think of it as a collection of Isaiah's prophetic writings. And, and some scholars, and I agree with them, uh, argue that that 6th through 12th chapter collection was likely cataloged to give encouragement to the remnant who returned to Israel after the Babylonian captivity. The collection, were we to look at all of those chapters today, spans various kings, two fallen kingdoms, the captivity in Babylon, and then the return to the land and the restoration. It also runs the gamut describing the covenant faithfulness of our God. From Isaiah's supernatural call to ministry, to God's judgment upon His people, to God's promise of a holy seed, to the root of Jesse, to the virgin-born king to come. And that collection concludes with the chapter that we're looking at today, and it's, it's actually a song, a song singing of that day. That day describes a new exodus for the people of God. Now, if you'll think with me, back to the first exodus, when Mo- Moses led the people out of Egypt. And after they had crossed the Red Sea, you may recall that Moses, the prophet, uh, became Moses the song leader. And he led all of Israel in 
song. A song of individual, personal deliverance. But they were not alone as Israel. They were not alone in their salvation. And so in Exodus, and I'm specifically referring to Exodus chapter 15, in Exodus, the song transitions from a language of personal deliverance to communal. A song of confession, of God's provision for all of Israel. Likewise, in our passage today, and it's not as obvious in our English translation, it's clear in the Hebrew, that Isaiah's song begins with a confession of personal, individual deliverance, a a declaration, so to speak, of exodus. But, as he transitions from this first verse that is in front of you, again, you, the you is singular there, you will say in that day, I, of course is singular, will give thanks to the Lord, to, to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. He then transitions from the singular you to the plural you in verse 3. With joy, you. That means you, the congregation of Israel, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so just as the exodus was both individual and communal, Isaiah presents an exodus that is both individual and communal. In his description, In the 6th chapter, and again, we don't have time to go there, but in the latter part of that 6th chapter, he describes what sounds like apocalyptic judgment upon Israel. And yet, in that language, there is still the language of a holy seed. In fact, that's how that 6th chapter concludes, referring to a holy seed preserved by God. And it was during... The reign of that dastardly duo, Ahab and Jezebel, not famous for their godliness, but certainly famous for their wickedness, it may surprise many to find that it was during their reign that Isaiah prophesied, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isn't that fascinating? And then... It was when the kingdom of Israel was destroyed. It was when Judah was judged. It was when only a remnant remained. Not in the land of promise, but in a pagan land that they had been carried off to that Isaiah prophesied these words. Listen closely. And I want to remind you, this prophecy is being sent to a people who have been removed from the promised land. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And so, clearly, Isaiah is prophesying in chapters 6 through 12, or leading up to 12, he is prophesying of a Messiah to come. Not 
in that moment of apocalyptic judgment, not in that moment of Ahab and Jezebel, not in that moment of captivity, but a moment to come, a fullness of time to come. And so I want to, in looking at this passage today, I want to start with the topic of salvation, a joyful salvation. And it's in this 12th chapter that Isaiah prophesies of a day, a day of thanksgiving, a thanksgiving for the abatement of God's anger, but so also the comfort that comes from God only. The Lord is not like the false gods of the pagan lands. Our God, the one true God, is not identified by being Well, arbitrary and capricious. No, what angers God? Sin. Sin angers God. It it violates His holiness, and therefore sin must be punished. And that is a big problem for sinners. Like you, and like me. Scripture is very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture is very clear. The wages of that sin is death. Eternal death. And the greatest human problem today is... Well, now think about this with me. This would be be kind of a fun discussion, wouldn't it? If if we were just to have a, a round table and ask, you know, what do you think the greatest human problem is today? We'd get lots of, lots of answers, wouldn't we? Might, might differ by what kind of media you take in, right? What do you think? Well, you know, I've, I've this whole deal in the Middle East, pretty big deal. You know, oh, no, I, I, think, it, I, I think it's the, the, the planet and, and problems. No, no, I think that it's the economy. Well, I think it's our national debt. Well, I think it, and just on and on and on. You can, just, you can just hear it, right? You might even be able to pull up sound bites on your phone. This is the greatest human problem. The greatest human problem is the one that nobody is talking about. Well, except for a few preachers. The greatest human problem is the wrath of God. That is the number one greatest human problem. There is not even a close second. That's it. The wrath of God. And the greatest problem is that all who are in their sin, are due His wrath. We justly deserve God's displeasure, and we are hopeless unless His wrath is assuaged. But Isaiah, but Isaiah here sings. He's not just telling a story. He's singing a song, and he sings of something glorious, of the Lord's anger turned away. He's singing of the Lord's anger turned away. A reality that requires a divine satisfaction. An atoning sacrifice for your sins and mine. At that same round table, what's the greatest human problem that's facing mankind? What do you think it is? You know, well, it's the wrath of God. Huh? What? Well, we've got to do something about it. We've got to do better. We've got to try harder. We've got to get better politicians. Fat chance. We gotta have better universities, better schools. We've got to improve our economy and reduce taxes and 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 you got nothing. I got nothing. I cannot satisfy 
You cannot satisfy the divine wrath of God unless He acts. Unless He acts to deal with this greatest of human problems. Now think back with me. I referred to the first exodus in the beginning. So maybe your mind went there immediately. I hope it did. Think about the first Passover in the exodus. God poured out His wrath upon man and beast, killing every firstborn son throughout the land, but preserved those that worked harder, those that did better, those that had better leaders, those that had lower taxes. No, only those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's it. God did not turn away His anger because of Israel's heritage. Because they were the descendants of Jacob. He did not turn away His wrath because they had done so many good deeds that they all built up and God said, well, they're trying hard. No, God did not pour out His wrath upon Israel in killing the firstborn sons only because of the blood of the Lamb. The atoning sacrifice made. The blood applied. And greater than that first exodus. The second exodus is freedom from the curse and the bondage of sin. Reconciliation with God. The gift and guarantee of the Spirit. And the promise of eternal life as a child of God. Here's the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now think about that. What he's saying is we, with whom God was angry, received not the wrath of God, but for Christ's sake, His righteousness. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. No longer slaves waiting around for the exodus to come. Through faith in Christ alone, we are freed. We're freed from the captivity of sin and death. But not only that, we are now the rightful children of God. We're not second-class citizens. In the kingdom, we are joint heirs with Christ. And therefore, all who believe on God's gift of His Son, all redeemed by His death and resurrection, look at verse 2. All of us who are in Christ can confess this. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. But consider the wonder that all of us in Christ can sing that very song. The God who was angry with us 
has saved us. How odd that sounds. The God who was angry with us has saved us, and so we trust in Him. The Hebrew word translated trust here in the second verse connotes a security that we have through that trust. Through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an unwavering trust. An anchor, to borrow an image that Paul uses. We will not fear. Why? Because our trust is not in men. It's not in, uh, again to draw from another uh, verse, it's not in horses and chariots, it's not in armies, it's not in money. It's not. No, our hope, our trust is in God and therefore we will not fear. He is our strength. He is our song. Here in this passage, Isaiah uses two names. You'll note it in your English translation in which two words for God are capitalized. Capital L-O-R-D, also the capital G-O-D. And in English, what the translators are doing there is they are translating a Hebrew word, Yah, Yahweh. The first half is an abbreviation. The Yah is an abbreviation of Yahweh. And so it is Yah, Yahweh, or, or the Lord our God, so to speak, in English. And it is a self-revealed name used here, most scholars agree, as a term of endearment. It is a covenantal name of God that connotes a relationship that only we, as His people, Only we, as the children of God, can use a phrase like this. He is not just a God, but He is the the one and only Lord God, our God. And as His beloved children, though we are still weak in our sinful flesh, we're not our strength. It's like Martin Luther said in, My mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Yeah. You want to lose? Go for salvation in your own strength. But because God is our strength, we trust in Him. We do not fear. We who were dead in our sins and our trespasses, we who in our sins once walked and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, now we have a song to sing. You have a song to sing. You didn't know that, did you? A few of you thought that. The rest of you, I, I'm sorry, I'm not a singer. I got more to say about that in a minute. But it is a song of God's rich mercy. Someone says, what's the greatest human, pro- what's the greatest human problem in the world? And you say, the wrath of God. And they say, oh, that's horrible. I don't know what we can do about it. And you say, well, I know. I've got the answer. <clears throat> Me, 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 me. Let me just sing a song for you, right? After they kick you out of the room, you're standing out on the sidewalk, you say, but here's my song. It's a song of God's rich mercy. It's a song of God's great love. It's a song of God's amazing grace. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I don't know how to sing that, but it sounds good. (laughs) 
And that's, that's a song. That's a song worth singing. Not only to yourself, but that's a song that the church needs to sing to the world. So the second thing that I want us to look at is the joy of proclamation. The joy of proclamation. Isaiah continues here with his prophecy of an exodus, an exodus to come. But then, as he, how he began it in the beginning, in the singular you, now he shifts to the plural you, with joy. We know how we would say this if we were translators in Arkansas, don't we? With joy, y'all will drink. I need Nan Hudson up here, don't I? With joy, y'all, with that close... Man, and not as beautiful as you make it. With joy, y'all would draw water from the wells of salvation. And that, which applies to you and me individually, you see, it's worthy of our celebration together. I mean, you're, you're here, right? You're not doing the, the home church thing all by yourself. And, and, and you know why? Because the life of a child of God is not one of isolation. No one can confess, at least and be right with the Bible. No one can confess, I'm a redeemed island. I need no one. <laughs> Said no true believer ever. All who are in Christ are called to Christian community. That's the church. We were made for it. In fact, secret might get out to be together, to worship together, contributes to our joy. And with joy collectively, we drink of the living water of God's provision. In biblical literature, I know many of you know this, that water is often used as a metaphor for life. As in the first Exodus, you may recall that water was essential to Israel's survival. They barely get into the wilderness before all of a sudden they're out of water, they're looking for water. And we understand this both literally but also metaphorically. The water of God's salvation poured out upon us by His Spirit is essential to eternal life. As one commentator puts it, what water is to the parched earth, God's delivering presence is to the one oppressed by sin and bondage. And it is with joy, it is with joy that we draw from the spring of water welling up to eternal life, knowing that whoever drinks of the water that Christ gives will never be thirsty again. If those words sound familiar, good memory, it's because that's a quote from John chapter 4 when Jesus is speaking with the woman at the well. And you may recall that in that conversation with her, after he revealed her sin and then revealed himself as the living water, and as she understood what he was saying, do you remember what she did? Got her water, went back to her house, turned on the TV. Nope. She ran back to the town and she told everybody, You are not going to believe this. Try us. Well, you know how bad I am. Yes, we do. This is John's paraphrase. He told me everything I ever did. Whoa, that's a lot. Must have been a long conversation. Everything. Perhaps, indeed, this must be the Christ, she said. 
And do you remember what happened? John records it this way. He said, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. (laughs) The proclamation of one soul directed an entire town to the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, this is what we will do. We who drink of salvation's water with joy. Look with me at verse 4. We will give thanks to the Lord. We will call upon His name. We will make known His deeds among the peoples. And we will proclaim that His name is exalted. If you think about this, only the redeemed may thank God for saving them. And so we do. It is our purpose. It is our privilege. It is our pleasure. Only the redeemed may call upon the name of the Lord. That is, that God has revealed Himself to us that we may rightly and relationally worship Him. Only the redeemed may make known His deeds among the peoples. For we are the recipients of His saving acts and works, and by virtue of that, we're it. There is no plan B. We're the recipients, now we tell of what God has done. I think about it this way. How else will my neighbor next door or my neighbor across the world hear of the Lord's salvation unless we tell them? Now, as Christians, we often refer to this in the context of the Great Commission to go in the authority and with the presence of Christ, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. That is, in essence, making the deeds of God known among the peoples. But here's the problem. I think today in the church, especially through much of the evangelical movement, we have convoluted it to the point that we have lost the excitement of the Samaritan woman at the well. I think that what has happened is we have been so influenced by manipulation and tips and techniques that we've lost the grandeur of the gospel. That we've lost. I've been saved. This is the greatest news in the world. And I want the world to know it. And so Christian evangelism is not dour drudgery. It is an invitation to say, taste and see That the Lord is good. It is an invitation to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to say, I've got something to share with you. And it deals with that greatest problem in the world. We need not complicate it. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians? He said, as we used to say in business, use the KISS principle. You know, keep it simple, stupid. I know, offensive to some, but 
Pretty simple. Jesus said this, let me keep it simple for you. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Pretty simple. And He goes on to say this, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. No eye has seen it. No ear has heard it. You can't even imagine it. It is so extraordinarily great. That, that, that is what God has prepared for us. And that is worthy of sharing. And that's worthy of praising the Lord. And that's where I want to end with this last point of joyful praise. Because you see, a fitting response to the joyful proclamation made to all peoples is praise. That's it. In fact, that's why you're here today. I hope you didn't come to be entertained. You're sorely disappointed. But here in verse 5, Isaiah says, look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5, he says, Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Yeah, that's it. That's it. We are called to sing praises to the Lord. It's not an option. It's what we do as the people of God. Because of what God has done for us gloriously. That Hebrew word gloriously literally means in accord with His high dignity. So we praise because this is what we do. And we do it because He is who He is. Sounds pretty simple. It is. And just as we do not assemble in worship to be entertained, we do not sing to entertain one another. Amen. Right? Because some of you are just not that entertaining. But this is confusing to the world, isn't it? It's confusing to the world because the world thinks that if you assemble in a room and you have seating available and there is music accompanying it, that that's called a performance. But a worship service is not, nor has it ever been, nor will it ever be a performance. Think how ridiculous that's going to sound in heaven. Well, John gave a great performance today. No. We'll say God is most glorious and worthy of lifting my voice to Him because what He has done is consistent with who He is and therefore He is worthy of our praise. And yet, I said I was going to mention singing, and yet, for some of us, we think of singing as optional. Something to avoid altogether. But I've got really bad news for you that hold that opinion. In the Hebrew, that's an imperative. That word sing. Sing praises to the Lord is a command. It is also integral to our joyful praise. Not only on Sundays, but every day. Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson says that we personally need. We need to sing. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say that one of the aspects of Christian joy must include singing, which I found very challenging. He says, Christian, start singing again. And don't wait for inspiration. Sing! The singing will give you inspiration. 
Praising God is a command, and it's not an optional luxury in our Christian lives. And I found this true in my, in my own life. Uh, <laughs> this is not one of those moments where they're going to cue up the piano and you're going to hand me a mic. But I have found in, in my own life that uh, just going out and taking my dog for a walk and singing a blessed hymn. So I've been, this morning, this is, this is close to heart, this morning I go out to walk the dog, and I'm singing, a mighty fortress is our God, and because nobody else is around at all, at 6.30 in the morning, I'll change it, and I'll do a little falsetto, I'll do some opera, haven't done rap, but that may be next, if you can rap, a mighty fortress is our God, and, but the lyrics to that hymn are just wonderful, and I've got a smile on my face, because if, did I, what did I say, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing, oh, yeah, that's it, that's the gospel, yeah, that's so good, you know, and my dog, you wonder what the dog's thinking, you know, like every once in a while, whimpers out in pain, you know, no, she never talks back to me. She's awesome. But that's the point, is, is that we should sing, and even more so on the Christian Sabbath, when men and women and children assemble to worship the Lord. Now, I want to give you an example. When Moses led Israel across the Red Sea, and he tees it up to sing, and he begins singing, and then he leads individually, and then he begins to lead Israel, and they're singing together as a congregation. Do any of you remember how that singing ended? It's really fascinating. He didn't, you know, what's that, that thing? He didn't do this. Miriam steps up, his sister, and she says, now all the women are going to sing. And she leads all of the women in Israel to sing and to follow her lead. We might say in chorus. What's fascinating, and I think hidden, in this 12th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah does the very same thing. Because what he does in the 12th chapter is he starts out with the masculine and individual. You and I. He then translates the grammar to the plural you, leading the congregation. Now, everybody join in. We're singing this song of salvation together. And then, when he gets to the last part of this, pa of this uh, passage, of this chapter, the word shout is conjugated in the feminine. It's a call like, to Mar like Miriam's call. Now, let's sing together. In fact, let's lift our voices up and cry out in praise to God. And if you think about it, that is a beautiful picture because such is Christ's church. For we assemble not as men, we assemble not as women, we assemble not as children, but we assemble as saved sinners, now saints. One body singing as a bride adorned for her groom. But it's not just that we sing, it's why, right? That's it. Why do we sing? Look at the sixth verse with me. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's us. We, we who inhabit Zion, we of Christ's church, we lift the volume of our voices in a simple praise, not of a God who was but a God who is, 
Not of a God confined to the pages of Scripture, but a God who is present in our midst in this very moment. The Holy Spirit who indwells every believer individually, so also meets with us collectively. Yes, great in our midst today. In this very moment is the Holy One of Israel. And so church family, let us sing for joy. For He has turned His anger away for the sake of the cross of Christ. And He comforts us by His Spirit. Let us sing for joy, for He is our salvation and strength. Let us sing for joy, for He is the fountain of living water. Let us sing for joy, that the peoples may know of His deeds and join us in worshipful exaltation. Let us sing for joy, that the world may know that He who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, He who upholds the universe by the word of His power, He who after making pure Purification for sin sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high is in our midst, the Holy One of Israel. Let us sing for joy to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, As we have assembled in worship today, so also you have met with us. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit works through your means of grace. And as your word has been read and sung and preached today, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. For the one who knows not Christ, may he or she look to Christ to trust in Him only. For salvation. For those who are in Christ. O God let us sing for joy. May our lives. Not only be joy filled. But be lives that sing praises continually unto you. For we will pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.